Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing. Projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today, we've got Punk2772. She's a four addy with attitude, rocking an earring, clown green eyes, black lipstick, and an iconic blue bandana. In real life, he is an avid art collector and the founder of Fram.art, a metaverse frame maker, and also a member of PunkDAO slash Punk Ventures. Please welcome a friend of mine, Mr. Artis Van Fram, to the show. Artis, welcome. How are you? Doing great. Hey, Maxwell. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate being here today. Nice. Nice to finally speak, man. I think we've um, been crossing paths on Twitter and also on various sort of discords, in particular sort of Punk Dow and Punk Ventures. Nice to sort of uh, finally connect with you. Yeah, likewise. I think it's always fascinating when you interact with pretty much anybody in the crypto NFT space, right? And you see each other in these various instances and places and eventually you like jump on the call, put a face to it, get to know somebody better. And that's always a very interesting experience. And to be honest, each time after I met somebody, I'm like, wow, there's so many great people involved in that space. And that's really where you realize that something is going to happen here. Totally. And, and I sort of feel like punks don't really leverage that to the full benefit and advantage as well. Right. But, but yeah, it's definitely something we can, we can definitely go into, but I thought maybe just to start us off slowly, maybe if you can just introduce how you got to your name, Artis Van Fram as your handle. Sure. So when we started building Fram, oh, I guess I'll talk about that in a bit later. I was thinking about with what kind of persona do I want to represent that project? And like years before, it has always been on my mind to be out there with a pseudonymous account, particularly after seeing punks and like PFPs being used uh, on Twitter. So that's the first decision where it was like, okay, I want to be one of these punks with my punk, which I owned at that time already. And when I was just thinking about a name, might sound superficial, but artist, the meaning of artist in Latin is frame. And with Brown, we're doing frames, right? So that makes sense. Sounds kind of nice. It's short. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's how, how that name came to be. Nice. And mate, like, why don't you share a little bit of background about yourself? Like, you know, where you sort of base, where you grew up and what ultimately led you along the path of, you know, Web3 and NFTs? Yeah. So I'm originally from Germany, south of Germany. I live in Stuttgart and I grew up in China, Beijing for a while. So I actually graduated from high school over there. Um, I attended the German embassy school in Beijing, which was a very unique experience and I think it shaped a lot of my future life to come just being in China. I also studied Chinese Mandarin afterwards in university over there and that's also how everything kind of connects to me being here today and how I entered that crypto space. 
some of my best friends I met over there, I lived with them, four Irish brothers, a family of Irish men who basically grew up in China as well. And we stayed close ever since I left China. And I think in 2016, one of them messaged me. He's like, yo, you got to check out that Ethereum thing, that cryptocurrency. I was like, what is that? It's the future, he said. <laughs> I'm like, all right, let me check it out. And yeah, that's basically how I got started. I think it was January 2016. And it was putting money down into ETH without really knowing what ETH is, cryptocurrency. I think my first experience with cryptocurrency was with Bitcoin when I was still in university and my roommate was a frequent customer of certain darknet marketplaces. But really, I got hooked into the system with Ethereum in 2016. And that was like a great start into experience out of everything building from the ground up when it came to smart contract platforms. I used to live in China as well. I was in Shanghai for a couple of years for work. And it sounded like you were there in the early days before it even really took off in its PK day, right? So I guess, how did you find your way into China? That's kind of a random place from being German, right? Yeah. And I think you're right. Like we moved there with our whole family in 2004. And there was still when there was not that many foreigners living in Beijing. And it was still like heavily being developed. And at that point, like the streets of Beijing, you would see like many VWs, Santanas, like these old cars, right? And like the majority of people would ride bicycles. Nowadays, it's a complete different scene. But yeah, I mentioned I come from Stuttgart, south of Germany. That's the home for uh, Porsche as well as Mercedes-Benz. And my dad mm -hmm. used to work at Mercedes-Benz basically his whole life. He was involved as an architect in uh, building construction sites. And in 2004, Mercedes-Benz started to build the first factories to mm. produce cars locally yeah. in China for that market. And yeah, he got involved in, in that project. It was pretty much our first time also moving abroad. Um, at that point, I was 17. I wasn't really into it. You know, I mean, I had a circle of friends and I was having, having a good time here. So I was like, yeah. And I wasn't really like world open at that point in time. So I didn't want to go, but then we moved and then I didn't want to leave. So actually they left by themselves and I stayed there. And that's where I kept on living with uh, these, these four Irish guys and the Irish family I mentioned before. That's crazy. And so how's your, your Mandarin? Is it still quite fluent today? I would say it's all right, but it's not getting any better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I used to use it every now and then, but nowadays yeah, it's getting less and less and you know how it is with like foreign languages you need to really practice it to keep it up and i do regret it every now and then but like man i should try and keep it up particularly also uh writing characters the simplified characters i used to when i think about how much time in my life i spent learning how to write chinese and how quickly that kind of vanishes particularly writing right it's like an own art in itself um yeah but i would say it's, it's all right yeah i mean um so when was i there i think i was in shanghai in 2012 and i felt like that was sort of the peak of when you know there was a lot of activity from foreign companies that were investing heavily in china and so you know you were going out to clubs and bars and it was full of expats 
was a really good vibe. I remember actually even going to, to Beijing on some weekends as well. I think, do you remember um, Sanditan? Yeah. Many memories in that bar street. <laughs> and there used to be even a like original Sanditon bar street, um, which was basically demolished in the development of Beijing working towards the Olympics in 2008. And 2008 for me is always kind of that like reference mark when to me personally, China really opened up and changed. Uh, I think particularly also that was true for Beijing because that was the first time when all eyes were were on Beijing and the city and so many foreigners came into that uh, city in particular. Um, but yeah, there was this old Sanditon Bar Street, uh, which was legendary. And that whole area basically got demolished and uh, redone uh, in wake of the Olympics. Crazy. So what made you stay? So you stay, your parents went back to Germany and you ended up staying in Beijing. What were you, were you did you stay there to study or what were, you, what were you sort of doing? I think one main reason was I wanted to finish high school over there. So I think 12th grade and in German high school in that system, you would have 13th grade at that time. So I wanted to finish school over there, but I also wasn't really ready to, to move back. So at that time, that project my dad was working on finished and completed. So they moved back and I decided okay, I want to finish high school here and then study Chinese afterwards. Started studying Chinese in high school and I liked it. I was good at it. I wasn't really a role model student. Um, but I like I like Chinese and I could apply it living there, so that was pretty cool. And yeah, then when my neighbors, the Irish family, basically heard that my parents are moving back, they were like, yeah, you can stay with us. We already have four sons, another one. Why not? <laughs> yeah, was a was a great time. I really miss it actually. Nice and getting a perspective from China being sort of a closed country versus the stuff that we're seeing on with crypto now as well must have been a real eye opener. Talk to us a little bit more around how you discovered, you know, I guess, Bitcoin and then found your way into Ethereum. What was the key thing that really stood out for you to explore and go deeper and down rabbit holes? And I know you sort of mentioned that one of the um, Irish brothers sort of told you it's the future, but what made you sort of want to invest a little bit more time going a little bit deeper? To be honest, at that beginning, it was pretty much just taking the word from my friend where I'm like, normally he... He's one of those persons who is uh, good at finding these trends. And I was like, okay, if you say that, I will try and put some money into it. Um, so it was purely driven by an investment perspective. And at that point, pulling the trigger without doing too much homework, really, which uh, in this case, it played out well. <laughs> in other cases, it didn't play out so well. But yeah, the Irish brothers, or two of them in particular, they were at that point living in Thailand. And they were involved in the SEOing industry, search engine optimization and affiliate marketing. And I think that particularly kind of industry, they had a much more early exposure to using Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for their business, doing international transactions uh, more easily. Uh, but I think also Bangkok was sort of a, a hub for for that community in particular, where people could really say we do remote only work. It's an attractive place to live, low uh, living cost, tax situation is good, and you can really use digital currency in, in that respect. So I think they had that kind of different sense for, for the industry. And then yeah, my experience started with trying to figure out how to actually acquire ETH at that point in January 2016. And I think 
Ethereum, basically the blockchain just launched a, a couple of months before that, end of 2015, right? And in Germany, where there was this uh, kind of local peer-to-peer -peer exchange called Bitcoin.de, uh, where I would need to go and figure out, okay, how to I acquire Bitcoin. And then after I acquired Bitcoin, I would need to send them to a crypto wallet on Poloniex. And some people still remember Poloniex, uh, I think it was one of the big shitcoin exchanges in the early days. I think it actually got acquired by even Circle. I'm not sure if I'm right a couple years later, but then sold again. Maybe I'm mixing that up. But yeah, it was legendary. And I think that the, it had that feature called the troll box where you just had a good time like being on that exchange and watching what people write in the troll box. Um, but yeah, that whole experience of kind of, okay, how do I interact with crypto wallets and sending these or sending digital currencies from wallet to wallet was kind of like an eye-opening experience for me and a big learning process, right? And I think one thing we knew already at that point in time was that don't keep your crypto on exchanges, keep your own keys and hold your own crypto. And this is when after acquiring some ETH, I figured out, okay, there's this wallet called Mist Wallet, I think was the, the first Ethereum wallet developed by the Ethereum Foundation. Yeah, I had it, I downloaded it to my MacBook Pro and I think at that point it was still a full node. So you needed to run a full node every time you opened the wallet. So crash my MacBook half of the time. Um, and yeah, that's how that whole journey started pretty much. So are you like naturally technical? Like are you more from a technical sort of background, do you think? Not really. So my educational background is in business development and MBA, but I started my professional career with a German technology company. Uh, so I was always um, working in technical sales and product management, different stages on technical products where there was always a level of like technical expertise required, but you needed to like dive in. Uh, I mean, I understand kind of high level how coding works, did a few courses, but yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a developer myself. So that was definitely also a unique, but also interesting, challenging for me to learn about decentralized networks, blockchain technology, public key infrastructure, and everything kind of relating to that and like all these different components enabling um, that technology at the end of the day. And that's the thing that fascinates me today. You bought some ETH using the Miss Wallet and found your way through that in the early days. So you're like a super OG uh, when it comes to sort of Ethereum. Talk to us about your NFT journey then. Like what was your first NFT and how did you sort of find your way into the space? So NFTs to like I properly dived into NFTs only in 2021 really. But my first NFT purchases were, it was in 2017, was it a crypto kitty? Or if you regard ENS domains as an NFT. I don't know if people really classify that as an NFT, but yeah, I pretty much as soon as ENS launched and you could register some ENS names, I started registering a few names and yeah, CryptoKitties was pretty much, I was playing around with the, the mobile wallets existing at that time. And I think that the one I was using was called Toshi and that is Coinbase wallet today. I think they rebranded um, eventually but that was like my experience of kind of finding depths to play around with because at that point in time right there was 
not too many like decentralized applications really existed. And I always used to check that stats overview site, I think it was called. Not sure what the name was, but it was basically an overview of different development statuses of different applications, like decentralized applications. You could always jump in and discover kind of, okay, what are people actually building on Ethereum? And through that, I kind of played around with a bunch of apps and yeah, CryptoKitties was one of the first NFT purchases, but I didn't really like dug into CryptoKitties and the collection and that whole project on a deeper level, but rather just, okay, let me buy that cat and see if it works and I actually can buy it. But so it's pretty, pretty valueless, but I still keep it. <laughs> and what was your thought process at the time? Was it just a more of experimental? At what point did NFTs become of real interest and of, you know, potentially real valuable assets for you? That pretty much only happened in 2021 when I acquired my punk and I've seen punks in 2017 when the project was launching. So like back in that day, as Big mentioned before, I was kind of curious, always trying to find what people are building, what are new projects, and was frequently, or my main information source back in the day was on Reddit, R Ethereum, and R Eve Trader. And I think those used to be great places. Probably they are still today, not frequent anymore. But yeah, I saw punks launch, and at that point in time, I didn't really make much of it. And it was only in 2021 when I was seeing like a lot of OGs or people I I knew or, or respected as builders, traders, or collectors in the space, like started using Hangs as their PFP. And at that point, something is going on here. Looks like I need to figure that out and dive into it. And really, it was only at that time when I started to take NFTs more serious. I mean, before I, I did see... NFT top shots and other projects launch and also see them take off, but I still didn't really go serious into it. I think I was one of that people at that time where I thought, okay, that seems like a funny little trend, like a toy, but didn't take it serious. And I think as it turns out with so many other applications, like most of them, they do start out looking like, like toys. Yeah. So basically you bought your punk in 2021. And the reason why you bought your punk was, I guess you started seeing some pretty big names, you know, rocking punks as profile pictures and you sort of felt like that was the profile picture you had to, had to get to fit in with the cool kids. Like how were you sort of thinking about the need for a punk? I mean, that was really my trigger to learn more about punks and look into, okay, why are people using them as a PFP and why in particularly is it crypto punks and then was a few days of digging into it and okay understanding uh, nfts as digital assets or nfts as basically token standard for any kind of representing digital asset as a, as a new standard of applying that whole technology and a broader space but also particularly looking at kind of the whole digital art space as a bigger category on top of that where then you come back to looking okay punks is really the innovator in that space who enabled and pushed forward that whole movement yeah, that sold it for me pretty much. So at that point, I was like, okay, I will acquire a punk. And I mean, at that point, they were also not cheap anymore, right? I think they had a, a big run already. And I think it was 20 ETH around that, which 
with ETH price at that level amounted to something like 40k USD. So it was not an insignificant amount where I said, okay, I'm going to buy a punk, but I felt comfortable. Yeah. And so maybe let's talk about your current pound, 2772. That, I'm assuming this is the one that you bought first and you still hold it. What was your, I guess, your thinking around traits and attributes when you were selecting and looking for a punk? And how did you arrive at 2772? So I did browse the collection and I didn't go on a deeper level in trying to become a, a expert on like traits and how to value traits. It was more of a, I would say, aesthetic choice to choose that punk in particular. And I mean, I did have, I was on, on a certain budget where I was like, okay, it's going to be a floor punk. And my wife has a good sense for aesthetics. She's responsible for the feng shui uh, here in our house. <laughs> so it looks pretty good. And she's more involved in like the traditional art space, but basically I got her involved and was like, look, here's the ETH we have available to purchase a punk. Which punk of these punks would you go with? without really knowing anything about punks or traits or anything like that. And that's the punk she picked. Nice. No, she's a beautiful uh, punk. The blue bandana was still is a very iconic trait, right? I think, who was that? I think it was 4156, the punk ape with uh, the blue bandana was a pretty big one before he sort of sold it anyway, but it's very iconic and very clean, your, your punk too. So uh, I think it's a good choice. Yeah, I, I personally like it. And I think even if it was a other punk, think you, you grow kind of fond of it, right? Particularly when you use it as your profile picture and you start to identify with, but also other NFTs or like artworks you collect and I think they grow on you over time. And particularly with, with my punk, I fear the day I will have to sell it. And my plan is to never sell it. Like ideally I will be able to pass it on to the next generation. So it really is my forever punk. Hopefully I'll be able to acquire some more in the future. But yeah, I, I do enjoy it. Did you have any experience collecting art prior to NFTs? Like, were you buying art uh, in the traditional sense? I didn't. So that was my start of my journey into collecting digital art and getting involved in the digital art ecosystem. My wife, she is a art collector and actually gallery owner. So she has a PhD in history of art. So since I've been together with her, which is a good decade now, I have had constant exposure to <laughs> traditional art and like the place we live is full of art. We even store art left and right in every storage space we have available in this place here. <laughs> but this is also when you realize that, hey, there's actually more benefits to owning digital art, like there's infinite shelf and storage place. And like most of the, the art pieces we have here at home, like they're packed away pretty much but yeah so this is where my kind of exposure to art in general comes from with my wife and it was only with acquiring that punk when i as mentioned took that whole movement more serious and i think from there i then started to dive into uh, generative art as a first really interesting segment for me where i was like wow okay uh, punks they are generative uh, in the essence and that led me to exploring generative art as a, a digital native medium right to, to create art and i think that is fascinating to myself as well and my co-founder um, ed Fram, he's a passionate generative artist so that's still fascinating to me 
Nice. Maybe before we get on to talk about Fram, just what was it like telling your wife that came from a traditional art world that you wanted to buy a picture for $40,000 back then? What's her take on the NFT space? <laughs> I mean, she was also in a place where she ridiculed it um, in a certain <laughs> way, right? Um, but I think when it came to making investment decisions, and digital currencies uh, in particular, I think at that time I had proved a bit of a track record with her when she knew, okay, like he's not a complete idiot when it comes to that. So, okay, why, why don't you go ahead? So for her, it was definitely also a learning journey. And in many ways, she still kind of reflects more the, the traditional art space. Also, when I, I talk to her about what's going on and uh, everything that, that's happening, she sees the potential. She likes it. And I think she's particularly one of these persons. She's like owns a, a traditional gallery and one of those people in a place who can facilitate kind of that transition to bring more and more mainstream people into, into the space as well. Yeah. Gotcha. Nice. Hopefully um, you can find a way to convert her into buying her own punk one day too. I'd love to sort of see her uh, floating around. But um... It's the plan. <laughs> so moving on to, I guess, from.art, what was the inspiration for you to, you know, kick off that project in that business? So that actually came to be through discussions uh, my wife and I had about, okay, how would you actually showcase NFTs in the physical world, right? And thinking about digital frames and like she with her gallery collaborates with a traditional frame maker, like a 60-year-old German passionate frame maker who's been doing that for like 30 to 40 years, uh, who like builds custom frames and frames, artworks, paintings uh, for people coming into that gallery. And when we're talking about that, we might, we made that kind of leap forward to say, hey, what about frames in the virtual world? Um, when you look at how we showcase digital art today in these metaverse galleries, like on cyber, spatial, Mona, or any other way. Frames are really not a, a valued object or they're definitely underrepresented. And this is how, how the idea came to be that, hey, in, that, in the future, we think that the digital art movement and how we experience digital art will evolve dramatically. And it will only make sense to add premium frames, custom frames, nice frames in those experiences. And yeah, from that seed of an idea is basically where, okay, let's start looking into that. And that's how that journey started, which was like end of, end of 2021. Nice. And could you talk to us a little bit about, some, I'm browsing the screen now. So I think you've got like a Genesis drop, which is literally an actual frame visually, but then you'd have to connect to your, on your website to really view it. Could you sort of explain, I guess, your different products and how you're sort of thinking through that? Yeah, so we started exploring kind of that whole space by thinking about, okay, let's just try to create digital frames. Or in, in that sense, now when I talk about digital frames, I mean virtual frames, 3D objects. Digital frame is a 3D object. We said we want to try to bring kind of this traditional sense of craftsmanship from, you know, when you look at frames, uh, historically, there were so many eras where you had really magnificent frames made from wood and different materials, particularly kind of like 
the Renaissance and like the Baroque era where frames were really like a piece of art in their own kind of respect. Um, I think in like con contemporary art and like in the modern day, you tend to be more and more minimalist uh, with that frame in, in many senses. And we wanted to kind of try an experiment of bringing that craftsmanship into that, that virtual world and interpret it in a new way and what that could mean. And I mentioned before that my co-founder at from Lucas Wick, generativeartist.com, he's like, yeah, let's try to build a digital frame collection based on generative art. And that was our genesis drop where we said, hey, let's do it. Let's think something compelling, something innovative, where we try to think about that medium from a new perspective. And yeah, that's when we launched our genesis in was end of April um, in 2022. So we're almost at one year today. And yeah, there's a, a collection uh, of digital frames and they're all based on a generative art script Lucas wrote. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty cool uh, collection. When we launched, I think the bear market already started to, to hit a little bit and digital frames are definitely back then and now a very niche segment. I think not too many people in that space know that we exist and what we are trying to accomplish, but I hope we, we get there. Yeah, no, that's cool. And what's, I guess, what's next for Fram then? Like, where would you like to sort of be in the next few years? So when we started with Fram and like the main focus at the beginning was really trying to do a collection, an NFT collection based on generative art and really establishing the first digital frames we create as a sort of artwork in itself. And from there, we develop kind of a bigger vision for what we want to accomplish with Fram. And that is really to be the metaverse frame maker and build up a new category in the digital art space, establishing proper premium digital frames and custom frames in the digital art experience. And when I think about kind of the vision and where we want to be is that like eventually, if you want to add a custom frame to your on cyber gallery, to your spatial gallery, your Mona gallery, wherever in any metaverse or digital art, experience you can get that at from ideally we are natively integrated with an api one way or another into these platforms so kind of a reference model for for this kind of path is ready player me it's a platform for 3d avatars and when you look into like um, these metaverse spaces or games and galleries a lot of them integrated so i think that's a very compelling example and role model for like my vision at Fram to be kind of a horizontally integrated platform where we can set off set a certain like standard for framing in the metaverse but that is kind of like a bit out i think at this point so we're building our own platform the integrations will be a core, core part of it but right now our main focus is on building what we call our own frame development kit, the FDK. So this is what we use ourselves to build our own digital frame. So we're building all our frames from scratch, basically. And we're building a toolbox based on generative art um, to really leverage and be able to scale custom frames in the metaverse. And with that, we have another platform or service we're just rolling out, which is called Fram Galleries. If you check Fram Galleries, it's kind of our own way of enabling anybody to showcase their art in a, a different way and a different unique way by that i mean kind of 
having a focus on really premium close-ups in a 3D environment. So it's not 3D in the sense of I am in a metaverse and walk around it, but 3D in the sense that I can zoom in, I can move the artwork and look into it, and we basically put it in, in custom frames. And these are kind of the two core products we're building at that moment is the FDK and the galleries, and they go well together. Um, we obviously want to integrate that. You can build a custom frame, use them in the gallery. That's what we're releasing with one of the next product releases over the, the next couple of weeks. So both products are pretty much in, in an alpha state at this point in time. That's cool. So basically, I'm just having a look at it now. So basically, it's like a different way to showcase your personal art collection, but going in there, selecting frames, and then attaching your NFTs to it and visualizing it within sort of the front the front sort of our gallery, which is kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. And you can build custom frames easily yourself with the, the FDK. And these frames you can then use in the galleries we provide, but the frame itself is a 3D asset, a GLB file. And that you can also easily import and use in spaces like um, on cyber or spatial even today. And yeah, this is basically kind of the, the product roadmap where we are and where we're going. There's still I think a lot of work to do and many avenues potentially to explore. I mean, we're still a, a small team um, at that point in time. We need to really focus our resources and our energy. But beyond that, there's some I think, interesting things we're doing in addition. Uh, I think one project we are currently working on and hopefully launching soon is uh, with a really cool artist together, Archer Nair, who mainly does kind of like one-on-one -on -one art. And he wants to launch like his first bigger edition, but for the bigger edition, he also doesn't want to just have 250 or whatever the number is, copies of that same image. He wants to kind of mix it up and this is where we are providing him with 250 custom frames. So each piece that has a, a different frame and the frames itself, they have kind of a rarity distribution where you have like different frame styles and different materials, uh, where for example, some have a gold material, some have ambience feature. And this is how you push rarities into, into that edition. Uh, so I think this is going to be a pretty cool experiment also in that space to see if there's a, a new cooler way to do additions instead of just dropping the same one in many many times mm. how do you like experiencing your existing art collection at the moment i mean your nfts and, and you know browsing and viewing them and do, do you actually have a physical sort of screens that you also view at home or are you sort of just purely digital like in terms of how you like to browse your own collection at this point in time it's purely digital and I did have setups on Cyber Gallery and Spatial Gallery SO, Decker. Um, and I like to play around. And I mean, that's the, the beauty of digital art and NFTs that you're not really bound to just one place in time, similar to, to the physical space. You can look at and experience your art in many different ways at the same time. So I'm still trying to convince my wife to, to get a a proper digital screen at home that hasn't happened yet <laughs> our wall space is pretty occupied at that point in time maybe maybe in the future but yeah and i think you know when it comes to digital art that's why i also like what we are doing with ram that uh, with our own gallery platform it's kind of another way to enrich the possible experience space 
for digital art, but also with the frames where we can contemplate pretty much all of the existing experiences in another kind of high-end and premium way. That's cool. And so talking about your collections then, like in this sort of bear market at the moment, are you looking at any particular collections to buy or are you sort of net holding or net exiting? So currently, I would say I'm monitoring and, and holding. I mean, punks is definitely top of mind when it comes to, okay, if there's any NFT, which is a goal where I want to acquire more of, um, punks is definitely up there. Uh, there's a few other segments. I want to get more involved in, I think, one-on-one art, in particularly starting to explore that in a like, more profound way, as well as uh, AI-based art is something on, on my mind. Um, but for that, you also need to really, well, personally, I like to take time to really dive in and explore that. And that is currently uh, something I need to free up one way or another. They um, yeah, have a, a little daughter, and so together with with Fran and my wife, uh, still trying to run her own gallery. We really need to like channel the energy here. Absolutely, it does get a little bit challenging trying to keep an eye across all these collections. Uh, there's so many different uh, options at the moment. Definitely. And if you were to look back across your NFT career to date, uh, are there sort of any you know wins or losses worth mentioning? So over the last days, I started preparing my tax report for 2021 and 2022. <laughs> so I have, uh, there's definitely some losses. I don't want anything to really stand out and mention it. But I think, you know, when I think about the point in time when I really started to go onto my NFT journey, that was also a bit of the, the vibrant NFT bull market in 2021, right? I think Punk I bought in was March or April in 2021. And from that, I think the whole space had a, had a good run. And I think the NFT space, but in general, also like the crypto space were very bullish at that point in time. And this is when I really started, as mentioned before, to get into generative art and exploring that whole space and uh, exploring kind of, okay, I can mint on art blocks and what is the experience like to, to mint a project here. I also got involved in, in some gen art DAOs. Uh, one is gen.art, uh, which I really like. And that's also how I met my, my co-founder today, Lucas Swick. And I think they also had their own kind of unique challenges now uh, with the bear market. But yeah, just being there and like acquiring and diving into many different uh, collections and buying digital art there were definitely a lot of them bought on uh, kind of the top of the market uh, but myself like i'm not not a trader really more of okay i want to buy something with conviction and hold that uh, for a longer time period potentially sell it some like such as my punk i, I don't want to sell us my chromie squiggles i own i also don't want to sell really yeah so i'm not really looking at that as losses but if you would take the current market value of many of these purchases and benchmark them against the principal capital i deployed it's not looking too good <laughs> i think that's pretty reminiscent of most of us in the space so um you're not alone and if you were to look across i guess the punk community do you have like a favorite punk personality that comes to mind such a hard question because there's so many great great personalities right and different spectrum of a lot of great personalities. 
but can't really like say this is the one. I mean, you have kind of the bigger accounts who rocking their punks as PFP, I think will have a lot of reach. I think DC Investor is one where, you know, as mentioned before, when I kind of dived into Ethereum and blockchain, are Ethereum on Reddit and are Trader where my number one kind of sources for, for information and learning about that space. And he was very active in those Reddits back in the day. So he's definitely one where I'm very fond of just also following his journey from the very beginning and uh, kind of grown into where he is today. So I think that was pretty exciting to kind of witness. Then again, there's many other great punks, some with, you know, lesser known, but also when I look at what you mentioned before, PunkDAO, where we are involved, there are certain individuals who, who are like great builders and have a great understanding for the market, but also on a technical way, like uh, give a shout out to Arcadius. I think he's pretty fascinating and I had the chance to also briefly meet him and uh, a lot of other punks in at NFT Paris, at the punks brunch. And pretty amazing when you meet so many great people in one space at the same time and like the conversations you have, pretty mind-blowing when you think about the punk community and kind of the capabilities of people in that community. I think it's definitely one of like the the premier networks, not just in the digital art space, but if you think about, okay, what's like traditional kind of membership clubs, right? Where you also have like benefits of being a member in that sort of club. And I think when you would compare that, punks is up there. Yeah, I've got to say, Arcadius is a pretty special individual. I think he's super talented, right? He's just done so much. I think he's, I think he was like the main dev for SquiggleDAO as well. And just being able to give us some insights around how that sort of operation works. I need to get him on Punkcast, uh, actually. Um, so that's a good reminder. But yeah, and obviously you mentioned PunkDAO and Punk Ventures. Yeah, I mean, the, the talent that we sort of have in there is pretty crazy. I mean, Aaron Wright, who was a lawyer, sort of created sort of you know, Tribute Labs and which was the genesis of, you know, Flamingo DAO and all these DAOs that sort of really started this whole wave of sophisticated crypto, you know, communal investing, right? And I, and I think to some extent, we're still trying to figure out what that actually is and how we coordinate, but I think it's uh, definitely an interesting experiment. And more, more, more importantly, it's cutting edge. And um, uh, to your point, I think, you know, punks are at the forefront of, of those things. And if you were to describe punk culture in a few words, how would you describe that? I think to me personally, punk culture and what I associate with it is really reflecting original values of what blockchain, crypto, particularly kind of Ethereum stand for and where, where they come from. And that is decentralization, digital self-sovereignty, a new new primitive in a digital infrastructure for that world where individuals can transact freely with each other, where you have a peer-to-peer global commerce platform, basically, which is a new technical infrastructure for the world to openly engage with each other, which is not owned by like a single service provider or a single monopoly who, who makes the rules and is able to manipulate it and is able to censor it. So for me, in a way, and as mentioned before, kind of where, where I come from with 
my experience, this is what punks, particularly punks meaning people rocking a punk as a PFP and representing themselves as a punk. This is what like is important to me. But beyond that, um, I think punk culture in general is also evolving. I think what is definitely there is also that the pioneership for innovating NFTs and digital art and assets as a new medium, applying blockchain technology and digital ownership to that and representing kind of this leap forward and new paradigm shift in how we transact digital objects as well. But definitely also with it being like the first PFP collection or digital art collection, um, a pioneer in the digital art space itself. That's very well said. I think, you know, I very much aligned with the Ethereum ethos to some extent, right? I think that the whole sort of freedom, decentralization point of view, I think anti-government, and I think that's been mentioned quite a few times. But, you know, if you think about it, if there is no ETH, there is no punks. So in some ways, a bet on punks is actually a bet on ETH. Uh, I truly sort of believe that. And, um, and I think you sort of said it really well. And if you could pass on a message to the next owner of your punk, what would you like to say to them? <laughs> it's a good question. In that case, I would need to think about passing on a message to my daughter. Because as mentioned before, ideally, she will be inheriting that. And that message would be that this is something to inherit to the next generation as well. Something, you know, where I believe I would value it that some things of value and history, if you are able to to hold that within your family as like even a family relict, particularly if it has some sort of like historic significance, I think is pretty cool. And if I just imagine that some generations down the line, somebody's rocking that PFP and it's like, yo, it was artists back in the day when everything started. This is how we, how we have that punk and how we acquired that punk. And in general, I'm like big family, family guy. That sounds weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for me, like family is definitely important and like trying also to preserve some family culture over the generations. And I think this is a pretty compelling way to try to accomplish that. And I mean, we have some like historic artifacts from a few generations also in our house. And every time like I look at it, I'm like, pretty amazing that we still have it and a way of kind of reminding yourself also of like your ancestors and the other generations. So tying that to uh, my punk, I think that would be pretty cool. I think so too. I think, I, I hope one day, you know, your daughter is old enough and when she's old enough to inherit this special punk of yours, she can look back and listen to this recording. And obviously, hopefully she, she comes on Punkcast one day too, right? And let the story continue. Um, but I think this is the beautiful thing about these NFTs, right? I think they're going to outlast our own personal mortality, which is a beautiful thing. And um, so, artists, this was super fun unwrapping your punk story. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the best with uh, from.art. And I'll, I'll definitely take a closer look to uh, all the things that you're building. But I guess from your side, any closing comments and questions and best way people can sort of find you and, and reach out to you? Sure. So. First of all, I really appreciate being here on Punkcast. I've listened to many great episodes before and they're really, really happy to 
to have that opportunity to chat. If you want to find me, connect with me on Twitter, Artus van Fram, or just Artus on Twitter. If you want to learn more about Fram, our website is fram.art. And Fram is actually a name of mix between the German word for frame, Rahmen, and the English word for frame, frame. Yeah, check out our platform, set up your own gallery, try to create a custom frame. And if you want to learn more, feel free to contact me on the chat. Awesome. And guys, that wraps up another episode of Punkcast for the week. And uh, we'll be back next week with another punk. Bye for now.